We're going to read this morning from the book of 2 Samuel, and we're in 2 Samuel chapter 1. If you're new with us here this morning, if you're visiting with us, please do find a pew Bible. You'll find our reading on page 304, and we've been working through 1 Samuel, and now we're in the 2 Samuel chapter 1 as we continue our series, and Nigel will come in a little while and open it and preach it for us. So 2 Samuel, chapter 1, found in page 304 this morning. And let us read this chapter together. This is God's Word. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziglag two days. And on the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. And when he came to David, he fell on the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. And he answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. And he said, the men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. And then David said to the young man, who brought him the report? How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on the Mount Galboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear and with the chariots and the riders almost upon him. When he turned around and he saw me, he called out to me and he said, and I said, what can I do? And he asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. And then he said to me, stand over me and kill me. I am in the throes of death, but I am, but I'm still alive. So I stood over him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And he took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. And David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? I am the son of an alien and a Malachite, he answered. And David asked him, Why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then David called on his men and said, Go strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan and ordered that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. And it is written in the book of Jassar, Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Escalon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. O mountains of Gilboa, May you have neither dew nor rain, nor fields that yield offerings of grain, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, no longer rubbed with oil, from the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty. The bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. 
O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned the garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1, page 304, if you've got one of the Pew Bibles, as we start into this book of, of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel, probably originally all one book, certainly tell one great story. I'm sure you have heard the phrase, uh, be careful what you wish for. Maybe some people who voted leave or some people who voted remain are this week being careful what they wished for. Maybe some of us wondering, was it a good idea to choose to live in a parliamentary democracy at all? But it's recognizing, of course, that, that some of the things that we really want are things that we end up regretting having uh, gotten. And if that's true for us at times, it was also true for God's people. It was true for God's people, certainly, a thousand years or so before Jesus. They had wished for a king. And, and, and more than that, they had actually asked God for a king. In First Samuel chapter 8, for example, the people ask Samuel, uh, God's prophet, for a king. And Samuel warns them of the fact that, that when they get a king, they, they will not be that particularly happy about that. It will not go well. And yet they say, we want a king over us. Then we shall be like all the other nations with a king to lead us to go out before us and fight our battles. So the people wanted a king, and they wanted a king for all the wrong sorts of reasons. They wanted a king to fight for them, really so that they would be like the other nations. But you see, God was the one who was there to fight for them, and they should have been delighted to have been different from the other nations and to be under God's rule. But God gave them a king, and the first king he gave them was Saul. And we've seen the demise of Saul. We're in the period after Saul's death. Saul did some good things, but he turned out overall to be a disaster. But in many ways, he was the king that was asked for. Ironically, his name means asked for. Part of the way through Saul's reign, David is set aside. He is anointed to be a future king. He's anointed actually three times in his life. And in 1 Samuel 13 and 14, Samuel says to Saul, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. So you see, David, Saul was the king that was asked for by the people, but, but David is the king who, in a sense, the Lord gave. He is the one the Lord chose. He is God's king. Now, we've said that the, the books of First and Second Samuel, probably one story together originally, are, are, are the, the stories of three great people. Samuel, the prophet, who bridges the time between the judges and the kings, and then Saul and David, the first of those two kings. And 
Saul and David overlap, but Saul dies at the end of 1 Samuel. So 2 Samuel is really the story of what happens after Saul's death. That's how the, the book opens, after the death of Saul. And David, we're going to see as we, we chart, as it were, David's rise is a different sort of king. He, he is the king God has given. He's different from Saul. And, and there's a hint of that right at the opening of this book in chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. Now, now one of the things, and we, we picked this up a couple of weeks ago, one of the things that, that Saul had particularly failed to do as king was to destroy the Amalekites. The Malachites were a terrible enemy of God's people, a people that God had decreed would be judged and, and, and taken out of the history line, as it were. And God's purpose was for Saul to destroy them, but Saul didn't. And on the night before his death, he is reminded of the fact, as he visits the witch of Endor, because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. And yet, what is David doing? As Saul dies, one of the things that we should remember is that, that the stories of, of David and Saul sort of overlap at this point. So what is David doing as Saul dies? Well, he has been defeating the Amalekites. They had stolen his wife and the wives and children of the men that he was with, you remember. And, and David had led a raid and wiped them out. So you see, here's God's king doing what the people's king had failed to do. Here's the king that God's people really needed. Indeed, the references to two days might be sort of significant. He stays at Ziklag two days. David doesn't know it, but Saul is dead at this point. So there's effectively no king in the land. It's maybe a throwback to the situation before Saul at the end of Judges. In those days, there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So God is sort of putting the reset button on. Let's start again with the king that I'm going to give you, God says. Now, just as we think about that sort of introduction, I wonder, is that something that we've got our heads around? How, have we really worked out that, that what God gives us is, is just so much better than anything that we would want for ourselves? Part of what it means to grow as a Christian is to increasingly want what God wants. So often we don't, isn't that right? We, we, we think we know better. We sort of say to God, now God, here's, here's what I really, really need. And yet God gives us something else. And he says, I, I know this is not what you want, but it's what you really need. It takes a lifetime to learn that, doesn't it? And God's saying this, as it were, to the people here. So, so let's look at the king that we really need. There are all sorts of ways in which God's king, David, points us to Jesus. Sometimes he does that really clearly. Sometimes he doesn't do that clearly at all. Sometimes he, he looks very unlike Jesus. But here there are ways in which he reminds us of the true king, Jesus, who is coming. So first of all, two things to say this morning. The king we all need is more just than we might think. He's more just. He's, he's full of justice. 
Well, the book opens, uh, and, and David doesn't know that Saul is dead. He knows that a great battle was going to take place between God's people and the Philistines. Remember, he sort of gets out of that. He was on the wrong side of that. But he doesn't know how this battle has gone. And as he waits in Ziklag, this Philistine city, a man appears. He is bedraggled, and he has all the indications that he's made a long journey, and he's full of grief as well. His clothes are torn, and there's dirt on his head. Those are are signs of, of mourning. And he comes, and he bows low before David, In the way that you would do to a king, David still thinks Saul is king, so this must have been strange. And David quickly hears that he's come from the camp of Israel. And he brings him the news that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Interestingly, he doesn't mention the other two sons of Saul who are also dead. David asks him how he knows. And he tells him that he'd happened to be on Mount Gilboa, that's where the battle was, and he saw Saul leaning on his spear. He's about to be captured. And, and Saul asks him to kill him. And so he says, well, I, I did what he asked. I, I killed him. And to prove his story, he gives to David the, the royal crown and the royal armband. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago and you were reading the end of First Samuel or you've read the end of First Samuel, you'll know that that's not what that part of the book tells us. It tells us that Saul asked his armor bearer, he was injured by archers, and Saul asked his armor bearer to kill him, and the armor bearer would not touch the Lord's anointed, and so Saul committed suicide. He fell on a sword. So two different accounts. Well, who do you trust? Do you trust the the biblical narrator, or do you trust this uh, greasy Amalekite? Well, pretty obvious. Uh, you don't trust the Amalekite. We're going to see that Amalekites are not to be trusted. And, and we, we understand that this Amalekite is lying. We, we'd assume that the reason he is lying is that he was on the battlefield. He wasn't fighting. He was there to scavenge the bodies for valuable weapons and coins and so on. He must have seen some of the things that are going on because his story is quite similar, but it's not at all identical. And he comes across the body of Saul And he knows enough of what's going on in the country to know that David is due to be the next king. And he thinks, Saul has been trying to kill David. He's his enemy. If I bring him the crown, he will give me such reward. He'll give me political reward. I'll tell him that I give this guy a dignified ending. He's king after all. But I'll also have been putting his enemy out of his way. And, And surely there'll be something in it for me. Well, David and his men, surprisingly, are distraught. They tear their clothes in grief. We'll look at that in a moment. And David then continues with the man. Where are you from? It's as if to say, where is it you're from again? He's heard that already. He says, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite, he answers. And then he says, David asked him, were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? So he's an Amalekite. He's one of these people that God had determined would be wiped out, that Saul was supposed to wipe out, but he's also a resident alien amongst God's people, so he, they were supposed to know the laws of Israel and, and abide by them, and yet he had killed the Lord's anointed, or he claimed he had. That, that, that was a crime punishable by death without question. David has him executed there and then. You see, verse 16, your blood be on your own head, your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. 
Now, this, the biblical writer is giving us all sorts of irony here. You think about it. Saul lost his kingdom because he plundered the Amalekites rather than wiped them out as God had told them to. And yet here is an Amalekite who had plundered him. Saul uh, claimed to have wiped out the Amalekites, but he had not. Now an Amalekite claims to have wiped out Saul, but it looks as if he did not. And the actions of this man are pretty sordid, aren't they? He seeks to to profit from Saul's death. He he wants to get political favor on the back of another on the basis of a lie. It's it's pretty mucky, but but human nature is sort of revealed here, isn't it? A spotlight is, is shone onto the human heart. It's an extreme case, but aren't we people who quite easily seek to get advantage by wrong behavior, a lie, a a betrayal, a broken promise? It maybe doesn't seem so much at the time. After all, Saul was dead. The Amalekite must have reasoned. It's not going to make any difference to him. I might as well benefit from this. What harm is there if I inflate the truth a little or or bend the truth a little? But what he has done, you see, is to miscalculate the character of the king who he is standing before. He thinks that David's just a bit like him, maybe slightly better, but that he will be delighted at the defeat of one who has been trying to kill him. But David's not like him. He shows himself to be someone who's concerned for what God has said. Concerned that the one that God has anointed to be king would not be harmed. David himself has had several opportunities to kill Saul and never does because he fears God. What God said to David was more important than personal advantage at this point at least. And so the Amalekite loses his life. What do we see here? What is it we see in David that that points us to Jesus? Well, Well, God's chosen king here is upright and just. He does what God says. He brings justice. David brings justice without knowing the whole story. And Jesus knows the whole story. And so he brings perfect justice. You know, there's some verses in the Bible that that make us feel very uncomfortable. Here's one, 2 Corinthians 5.10. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one might receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. See, here's a man, this Amalekite, standing before God's chosen king, and, and he is judged. But that's where we're all heading, isn't it? We're all going to stand before God's chosen king. And we will be judged. God's true king is perfectly just. Can we hope to meet him as we are? Well, we know that we can't. We need help from outside of ourselves. And actually, the one that we turn to is not someone other than God's chosen king, but we turn to the king. We turn to Jesus because what we're going to see that as well as being incredibly just, he's also incredibly loving. That's our second point. God's king is more loving 
than we would imagine. Because as we've seen, when, when, when David hears of the death of Saul and Jonathan especially, the reaction of him and his men is really remarkable. David and all the men with him, verse 11, took hold of their clothes and tore him. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. So they, they genuinely grieved for Saul. Even though Saul had been against David, and they grieve for Jonathan, and they grieve for the masses, mass, massive losses that the army have received. This is a national disaster. And David and his men enter into it wholeheartedly and spontaneously. And then David goes on, you see, to write this poem that's from verse 19 to the end of the chapter. It's a poem that records his grief over these things. And he not only writes it for himself, but he directs that it should be taught to the people of Judah and record it in, in, in a book that we don't have, uh, this book of Jasher. Interesting, we should just note for all of those who say, uh, well, you know, all of these oral traditions just passed around and they changed over the time. The Israelites were in the habit of writing things down. David was. But, but he gives voice to the grief that he has and the grief that people in general have. He teaches them how to lament. Now, now we're going to look at this in a little bit more detail in a moment, but, but let's just make the point that the Bible here is validating what it is to pour out your heart before the Lord. It's saying it's a good thing, a natural thing. Sometimes Christians stress the victory of the Christian life and the victory of a believer going to heaven, that, that we feel that grief is somehow inappropriate. But look at this. This is God's chosen king leading the people in lamenting the loss of even Saul and especially Jonathan. And it's all through the scriptures, this. Don't we remember that the Lord Jesus stands at the grave of Lazarus? And what does he do? Does he just talk about being the resurrection and the life? Well, he does that, but he also weeps. And Paul, who talks about the prospect of losing his friend Epaphroditus, despite Paul's absolutely rock-solid conviction of eternal blessing. Remember he says in Philippians, better by far to be with Jesus. And yet the thought of losing Epaphroditus, he says, would cause him sorrow upon sorrow. You see, it, it's, it's the right thing to pour out our hearts before God when our hearts are heavy, whenever we're especially faced with the death, the, the separation and loss that death brings. As I said, I'm just aware this week of, of many people within our church family who faced bereavement. And, and that's true so often, isn't it? We find ourselves just plunged into grief because of the circumstances of life. Not just bereavement, but losses that we feel and griefs that we have in all sorts of other ways. Maybe like David, it would be helpful for us to actually write down our thoughts in the presence of God. 
Well, what does David say? Well, look at some of the things he says. Verse 19, your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. That little phrase, the mighty have fallen, runs through the poem. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, verse 20, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. So Gath and Ashkelon are the most prominent Philistine cities. David just can't bear the thought of, of them rejoicing over these deaths. Doesn't it grieve you sometimes when the world rejoices over some disaster within the church of Christ? Verse 21, O mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain nor fields that yield offerings of grain. So, so David thinks of the place where Saul and Jonathan have died. And, and he has a sense that it's just inappropriate that things would carry on as normal. You know that the normal cycles of plants would carry on. It's, it's a big part of what it means to grieve, isn't it? You, you feel so deeply that, that this is not right and you almost want the world, even the very earth, to recognize that something wrong has happened. For the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, no longer rubbed with oil. Uh, leather shields were rubbed with oil to preserve them. And, and, and now Saul's is just dirty with the muck of battle. Interesting how we associate objects with people sometimes, isn't it? They, they remind us of them. He pays tribute to their strength in battle. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious. In death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. They were together, you see. When they died, Saul had, had at times tried to kill Jonathan. But Jonathan was tremendously loyal to his father. He was at his side when he died. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. So he calls on the, the women of the country to mourn, acknowledges that, that Saul had brought prosperity to the land, at least a measure of it, fine garments. You see how even in this he's, he's overlooking some of the really bad things that Saul had done. He's helping people to remember the good. He was, after all, the anointed king. As one person has said, it wasn't the time for a balanced biography. And then he turns to, to Jonathan, especially, how the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of woman. You might not be surprised to know that some of the LGBT people have claimed that there was a sexual relationship between David and Jonathan. But that's to completely misread the text. Jonathan was faithful to David, lovingly faithful to him, because although Jonathan was the heir to the, tr the throne, he recognized that God had chosen David to be the next king, and he selflessly backed David at expense to himself. He was loyal beyond what could ever have been expected. He showed a, a practical love better than any of David's wives had. Can we learn a lot about how grief should be expressed? Highlighting the good. Acknowledgement of great loss. Through it all, a recognition that, that these people were, were gifts of God to David and there's an underlying thanks to God here, even though God is not actually mentioned. But as well as teaching us about grief, that's not our, our main point, 
what does this say about David and his heart? Doesn't it say that he's full of grace? Saul is in many ways his enemy. David has patiently waited for the Lord's purposes. When one dynasty gave way to another in the ancient world, it was common for for people just to clear out the old guard, to kill everybody associated with the the previous ruler. But but David is leading the people not in retribution, but in, in grieving for them. So David's reign begins with what? With words of grace. You see, he's much more loving than we would imagine. Isn't this our hope whenever we come to our King, Jesus? He is perfectly just. He, he knows our sins and, and our failings. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? Don't we feel that? But he's incredibly loving, and so we can draw near to him with confidence. Jesus does not only begin his reign with a word of grace, he is grace through and through. So whatever your heart's like today, whether you come here full of thankfulness or burdened because of life, let let David here remind you of the, the perfect king Unlike the Amalekite, we cannot do better than this king. We cannot hope to scheme our way to a better future. He's the one that we need. And as we come to him, as you come to him, you will find that he is incredibly loving, full of grace. Let's pray to him just now. Lord Jesus, you are the king that we all need. Your justice is perfect. Your love is infinite. Your mercy so tender. Thank you that as we come to you, We cannot do better than you. We pray that you will save us from looking anywhere else for the help that we need this day and every day. And we pray it in your great name. Amen.